Tuesday, February 25th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Million Dollar Portfolio, Mike Olson, and from Motley Fool Funds, Tony Arsta. Good to see you guys. Thanks for making it in on a snowy day. Well, it's hard to start stay or to continue to stay home on snowy days, seeing as they all seem to be snowy days. Well, and as we were just talking about, Tony and I live walking distance from the office, so there's pretty much no excuse for us. It's a pretty bad excuse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to dip into the full mailbag. We will continue uh, Oscar week and talk movies about business, investing, and money, all things money. But let's start with a little bit of earnings, and that's Home Depot. The fourth quarter looked pretty good, Mike. Profits up 7%. Same-store sales up 4.5%. They raised their dividends. On the surface, it seems pretty good. The stock's up a couple of percentage points. But I'm seeing the phrase mixed bag all over the media when it comes to this quarter. Yeah, you know, I I don't really agree with that notion. Um, It's really hard to call this anything but a good quarter. The average ticket was up. If you were to go ahead and strip out the effect of the last year's comparable period, having an extra week, customer visits were up, and they continue to get nice operating leverage. This is a business which, you know, I kind of panned the last quarter, or I didn't really pan the last quarter, but the stock as it being overpriced and really uh, reflecting sort of the consensus view that as consumers see higher home prices, they start to repair their balance sheets and they feel a little bit more confident about the economy. Yeah, they're going to invest money in their houses. But one thing that I didn't really give effect to is. A Home Depot is basically like kind of an ugly warehouse. And so when you get incremental sales, they go straight to the bottom line. The margin expansion, the operating leverage story here is pretty tremendous. Um, I was just going to say the average ticket price, this is at least the second quarter in a row they've they've done that. Because I remember three months ago when we talked about their earnings, their average ticket price was up as well. And that's one of those things that is not necessarily a headline grabber, but if you can just continue to push that up, mm-hmm. if you're a retail business, that's tremendous. That's it's big, exactly, because this is a huge fixed cost business. I think you know if you're to look at Home Depot on sort of a take a ten thousand foot view here, there are a few things that they've done really well. They have wicked supply chain efficiency and they deal in scale, and so that enables them to do two things for their consumers: they can offer low prices and earn high margins. A little bit of a comparison here. Walmart, widely lauded as one of the most efficient retailers on God's green earth, they do 6% operating margins. Home Depot, 12% on the full year last year. That's incredible. Um, and you know, Frank Blake, the CEO, he has been relentless about ringing efficiencies from their cost structure. Uh, can't really say enough good things about him. The question you really want to be asking right now is, so now we're really on the other side of all of that sort of malaise and ugly surrounding the housing market, and people are feeling very comfortable investing in their houses. Is this a sustainable trajectory, or is this one where you're a little bit on the high end of the spectrum? Right now, it's trading about 18 times trailing cash flow. They are guiding for continued improvements. Um, I think it's possibly interesting. I don't really. It's hard for me to get excited about one of the world's largest retailers and call it an undervalued stock. Tony, I want to ask you about something that was said on the conference call, and that was uh, Carol Tome, who's the CFO, who talked about being pleased that Wells Fargo was loosening up its uh, its credit uh, requirements, and she she came out and the, the quote was, "We need to be getting we need to get millennials into their first home," and on the one hand, I appreciate that kind of frankness. On the other hand, 
that seems – I don't want to use the word desperate, but that, that strikes me as a comment that almost comes out of nervousness. Like if you're a shareholder and I'm not, how concerned are you that, yeah, millennials aren't necessarily rushing out and buying their first home? And to what extent, if any, is that going to hit Home Depot? Because clearly they're thinking about it. Yeah, to some extent, Home Depot is driven by overall economic activity. There needs to be new new building going on, new construction. But at the same time, it is amazing how broad Home Depot's revenue sources are. So over the last quarter, they had they had a lot of weakness in home building and uh, lumber because of the weather. But at the same time, they were getting increased revenue from other sources. So. There might be an issue there with millennials, but I, I don't really think it has a, a big impact on, on what they're doing long term. Let's move on to the full mailbag. You can always email us, radio at fool.com is our email address. Got some emails regarding our conversation yesterday about Netflix and Comcast uh, from literally around the world. Uh, Mohammed Al-Shamari, who identified himself as listener number seven in Saudi Arabia, and from Matt, in how does he know he's listener number seven? Uh, you know, some of the listeners assign themselves it's a number. Tight, it's it's a know. tight network. Yeah, I don't know if he's, he's. I think he might just be saying he's listener number seven. And oh, by the way, he's in Saudi Arabia. But who knows? Maybe well, we're maybe happy there, to have him. Maybe there are um, seven listeners. I'll give it to <laughs> him. Spread the word. Uh, and from Matt in Columbus, Ohio, um, yesterday uh, Jason Moser had uh, mentioned a restaurant analogy that he had read. Uh, about the Netflix Comcast deal involving chefs and waiters and getting food to the table and that sort of thing. And and Matt wrote a very lengthy email. I won't read the whole thing. But he went a different uh, direction. He went with a delivery truck analogy and basically said, look, think of Comcast as a gated community. Netflix was paying a transport provider like Cogent to function like UPS and deliver its product. Comcast noticed that a ton of UPS trucks were delivering Netflix bits to their customers inside the Comcast-gated community. Comcast reached an agreement with Netflix, wherein Netflix can pay Comcast to bypass UPS and make deliveries to a Comcast processing center. Instead, Comcast then takes the packages of Netflix bits and delivers them to their own customers. Uh, There are a lot of angles to explore here, Tony, but first and foremost... Does that analogy make sense to you? Uh, yeah, I think it makes sense. The the like you said, there's just so many parts here. It's such a, a complex issue that it's it's difficult to put it down into one simple analogy. When Netflix is accounting, and for, honestly, that's all I'm ever looking for in life. Just yeah, make it simple tough. for me. Yeah. Since Netflix is a third of all internet traffic at this point, it, it analogies to how the rest of the internet works don't quite apply in the case of Netflix. But I think this analogy is fairly true. UPS delivering packages to a gated community is very close in the sense that you need someone to do that last mile. And also, each package being delivered is a specific package. It's not You can't just deliver a box to any home you choose. You need to put it in the right place. So where are we going now? Because it seems like Netflix, everyone is expecting Netflix to strike similar deals with other major internet service providers, Verizon is probably next in queue. Mm-hmm. Uh, are there other companies that need to step up and do the same? Does Amazon Prime need? Does Amazon need to strike these types of deals yeah. uh, with Prime, or or does the fact that they're not taking up a third of the internet mean that you know what this topic, this issue is 
Netflixes and Netflixes alone. I think this is kind of a level setting um, on the part of the cable companies, and it was a smart strategic move on the part of on Netflix's part. But you want to examine really. So, so this is a very complex relationship. But there are really three key stakeholders in this: that is the content providers, the folks who own the internet. And Netflix as a content distribution medium. Netflix has two primary costs. That is content and broadband. And the reality is if Netflix continues to take the cable company's TV business, they're going to get their pound of flesh from Netflix in the cable fees, whether that is by charging more to move their content faster or charging more in internet costs to consumers. So, you know, the broader question that you're asking right here, and this is what I think that this deal, the, the question this deal begs, is does Netflix, does Netflix control its destiny? And it's hard to make the argument, at least right now, that they are firmly in control of their destiny because they're never going to own that wire in the ground. And if they take, they keep taking those those customers and what profits are associated with them, the cable companies are going to fight back. Same with the content providers. That's another email we got from uh, Luis Correa who wrote and asked, did Netflix just widen its moat by negotiating with ISPs? Did they widen their moat or did they, or was this a move that they just flat out had to make? Uh, it's difficult to say Netflix is widening any moat when you look at who their competition is. They're competing with YouTube, which is Google. They're competing with Apple, with Disney, with all these larger companies, Netflix is actually kind of a small fish when you compare it to who their actual competition is. So to say they're widening a moat would be uh, – that would be generous given their, their current balance sheet. Uh, but it, it is a deal they, they needed to make. They, they, the only thing they can provide to their customers is – a good experience in the home, and they need to pay whatever it takes to do that. This, I th- uh, sorry, quick again. nuts and bolts question: the the amount of money that they're paying was undisclosed, right? Why is that? Why is it that public companies, both Comcast and Netflix, are public companies? Why is it that they don't have to disclose that, or is it something? It, it, I mean, you'll see it at some point or another. Uh, but you know, Netflix's income statement is completely opaque, but you're going to mm-hmm. see that in some way, shape, or form. But when you say we're going to see that. I think what you – correct me if I'm wrong. I think what you mean is we're going to see – Lower profits. We're going to see lower profits and we're going to be able to attempt to extrapolate what we think they're paying Comcast. But we're never going to see a line yeah. item that says, by the way, this is what we're paying them. Right. So. I mean you're, you're never going to know. And I think you know, on the broader scale in terms of who pays who what, um, you look at – I was looking at this last week when we were talking about House of Cards because for some reason people thought that was a headline. Guess what? It wasn't. Um, but Comcast – It's a good show. Yeah, great show. <laughs> um, well, I actually haven't watched it. I'm under strict instructions that I have to watch it. Okay. Um, but Comcast, Time Warner and Charter, you want to venture a guess as to how much they pay the content companies in a given year? $15 billion. So – the point here is that and, – and this goes to Tony's point. The moat or lack thereof, there's not really one. And I think that if you're to take kind of a bigger picture view, I said, all right, so let's assume that Netflix basically becomes the de facto standard in content distribution to the home. Let's assume they can maybe charge $25 a month. They have cable company type earnings power. They do 20 percent operating margins. They reach maybe two-thirds of U.S. households. I don't really have a strong opinion on whether or not the international story is there because it's kind of a chicken or egg thing. Are they going to be able to get the scale and entrench themselves? Not yet clear. 
But if they're able to do that, the stock is more or less fully valued at this point. So the question you're asking as a Netflix investor right now is whether or not they can become the de facto standard. They can exert meaningful influence on the cable companies and the content providers. And then, you know, can they also be successful internationally? Because your upside in the stock comes from them being successful internationally. That's all there is. So I, I just I don't I don't really understand this. I don't understand the moat argument. I don't understand the stock argument. Mike mentioned Time Warner. Tony, where do you think this deal that Comcast has made with Netflix? What effect, if any, do you think this has on Comcast's ability to get its proposed deal with Time Warner approved? In a sense, the Netflix deal is kind of an outlier since it is such a large portion of traffic. But at the same time, it shows how much power Comcast has. So Comcast at this point now is a backbone provider for the U.S. Internet. And at the same time, they they are the local service provider for millions of customers. And having that much power in in the hands of one company, you see the same thing with with Verizon now. It's really not the way the internet was designed where you had the backbone providers and the local ISPs as as separate entities. And I think making Comcast even larger by allowing them to acquire Time Warner uh, cable is I, I just don't see how that can go through. Right. I don't, I don't think this improves the odds of this deal happening. A lot of folks were talking about the cable end of the spectrum or the TV end of the spectrum, and that's not really what the argument is about. This mm-hmm. is about who owns the internet lines in the ground and net neutrality. Now, arguably speaking, net neutrality is kind of a non sequitur in this just for the very simple fact that, you know what, if Comcast doesn't get it by charging Netflix more, they're just going to charge their customers more. I mean, and so, you know, one way or another – that money ends up in their pockets, but so I, I I don't know. Like this is probably something that people wanted to think about twenty or thirty years ago, when they let Comcast and whoever else become such huge owners of bandwidth and spectrum. Mm-hmm. Right now, you can't do anything about that. And you know, then the other argument would have been you never could have incentivized them to invest in it in the first place if you didn't let them own a large chunk of it. So it's it's kind of a It'll be interesting to see what happens. And when we talk about the internet, there's a big difference between how the internet was originally created and being able to stream in real time high definition video. An hour of, of high definition video would be equivalent to roughly a day's worth of constant internet browsing, and uh, the pipes were never really designed for that. Right. Yeah, I don't think anyone conceived that at the time. Right. Too. Yeah. Right. You and I were talking yesterday, Tony. You made the point about you know people who are just sort of like, why isn't my high def you know, video coming through, you know, from the other side of the world as quickly as I want it to be. Yeah. Um, right before we came in the studio, I saw um, uh, an announcement that Disney has launched a service for consumers to buy and watch Disney, Pixar, and Marvel films online, store it in the cloud, and watch it anywhere. It, Mike, it sort of goes to, you know, to one of the points you were making there about the options that consumers have and how many content providers there are and how... Mm, this is a Wu Tang financial move, which is you know diversify your bonds. Um, <laughs> you know Disney is basically just trying. They they want to keep. They they don't want the content distribution ecosystem to be Netflix exclusively, um, because that makes it harder for them to negotiate on those terms. Keeping an Apple in the game, keeping an Amazon in the game, and you know arguably speaking, giving them much more attractive terms 
then Netflix is very much in their best interest right now because you don't want this to be a one, you don't want this to be a circumstance where five ten years down the line Netflix is the only player, and they'll do all they can to prevent that from happening. Uh, before we get to uh, our movies, uh, Tony, you had mentioned to me the, the Mobile Congress uh, is going on this week. You watch the technology industry very closely. What is what, if anything, are you expecting to come out of it? Are there any big themes? What are you seeing? Yeah, Mobile World Congress in Barcelona takes place every year. It's a pretty big event. Uh, what we're really seeing this year is a lot of smartphones being made by uh, Chinese companies and other Asian companies that are making great phones for very low prices. Uh, I don't believe most of these phones will really catch on in the U.S., but when you're looking at markets like China, uh, companies like Huawei and uh and blank on some of the other names, but they're they're making phones that that I don't know how Apple competes with a company like that. You've got a Taiwanese company called MediaTek that's making new chips that compete with Qualcomm. Great quality product at a fraction of the cost. Uh, so that's where we're going with smartphones. The, uh, the big trend at, at the Congress this year is the wearable devices, so watches, the Google Glass, things like that. Samsung released updates to the, all their watches that they had initially released last year. They have a, a new smaller watch called the Gear Fit, which is basically like these Fitbit, Nike-type wristband things, plus the the phone watch functionality with a curved screen. So this is a trend that will continue. People can talk about whether Apple will get into it or not, but everyone is getting into it. Everyone thinks this will catch on. And some of the newer stuff actually looks kind of interesting. So Tony, just just a quick question. Like I get I get the idea of a wearable device which is maybe like super intelligent in terms of tracking your activity from a fitness perspective. As an avid runner, if I had one that was like it could keep track of my heart rate, the distance mm-hmm. I ran, where I ran, when I ran, how quickly, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that's cool. But a lot of these other wearable devices are they ever going to be anything but like weird? Like I look at I saw somebody <laughs> I was out <laughs> I was out a couple weeks ago and I was at this like this wine tasting and there's some guy wearing Google Glass and it's just like you're weird. Um, yeah, why yeah, are that, you doing that? That, uh, that hasn't really been a uh, Google Glass. I, I still can't. Uh, it seems like a wearable video camera at this point. Uh, there, there's more to it, but we're still a long way from where they envision that going. In terms of the wrist devices, though, the new devices all track your heart rate. They all track various other things. Um, Apple filed a patent for headphones, which actually measure your level of, of perspiration. So uh, new new Apple headphones in the future may be able to tell how much you're sweating, how much you're exerting yourself, which might be a good I, thing. Can't, I can't, 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 can't you just rate. look at your arm and see <laughs> right. how much you're sweating? Mm-hmm. And maybe it's just me, but I don't want to know what my heart rate is. Anytime I've ever known what my heart rate is, it's because I'm in a hospital and I'm hooked up to a bunch of monitors. Actually, ironically enough, I say this as, as somebody who is like an avid runner, but I've actively avoided getting one of those de- those right. devices because I know that I'm going to look at myself after a long run and be like, you shouldn't have been running that fast. You need to turn it into a game and see, uh, see how high you can get your rate to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, That's probably not something I want to know again. <laughs> uh, let's wrap up. Uh, it's Oscar week. Uh, yesterday, the movies mentioned Wolf of Wall Street, Trading Places, Other People's Money. Mike Olson, what's a, a business movie you would recommend for our dozens of listeners? Uh, this is one which is a few years old. Something Ventured was released in 2011. 
And basically, the story it's a story of the early and I guess now preeminent venture capitalists. It's Docu- fascinating. Documentary. Documentary, yes. I mean, you actually have interviews with the Kleiner Perkins of the world. It's, it's really like this is unbelievable access. And it's also fascinating because these guys at the time, they, they really existed at the intersection of artistry, investing, and business um, because a lot of the stuff they were dealing with, I mean, it was nothing more than pipe dreams. And it's also interesting from an investing standpoint because there's, there's a super valuable lesson here, which is that for them, this wasn't a frequency game, but a magnitude game. And a lot of these guys were very fortunate because they got it right early and the first time. And, you know, to the extent they were to invest in, Chris, we were talking about how one of the, the things that I, I can't remember who it was they invested in, it was a motorcycle snowmobile. Right. It was their second, in, their first investment, early stage investment, paid off hugely. And it was something like Intel or, or, Atari, or, or Genentech whatever, yeah. or it was, you know, it was something like that. And then their second one was literally a motorcycle matched with a snowmobile, but the photo in the movie it really looks like someone photoshopped a motorcycle onto a snowboard. And you're like, really? This was your second great idea? And, you know, and that's that's the very interesting part about this. And there's a valuable lesson for us as investors here because, you know, getting to write early really cemented their future. But had they not, these guys might have – they might not have existed. It would have been just like an, another anonymous visionary <laughs> in the, the pantheon of investing in, in the world where just – you know, I, I think that – you need to understand your risk tolerance and your willingness to diversify and tolerate losses. Uh, just two other quick things on that. Paul Holland was one of the producers of the movie. I interviewed him for the radio show a couple of years ago, and it was, it's it's a wonderful film, worth worth finding. It's it's probably on it's Net- on Netflix. It's on yeah. Netflix. It's probably on Amazon Prime, Hulu, others. Um, the other thing was uh, there are a few stories. Uh, along these lines of people who had the opportunity to buy into X company at an incredibly low price and turned it down. And one of them, of course, is Apple. There's a guy who's basically offered 50% of Apple for very, very little money and uh, walked away from it. Yeah. Well, who would have done, PC? Yeah. On a risk-adjusted basis, maybe it was still the right move. <laughs> well, you know, it's possible. I, they do include they do include photos of Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak when they were in their twenties, and they're too frankly, they're just two scruffy looking dudes. And mm-hmm. it's like, I mean, Steve Jobs did not wear deodorant. It's just like if you had this yeah. guy walk into your office and you're like, "Wow, well, you stink," and you're presenting me with this like kind of batty idea of the world changing and existing like through some medium. Yeah, I might have been just like, hmm, "See you later, Tony." Uh, I'll have to get your judgment if this is a business movie or not. Godfather Part Two. Absolutely. Importance right. of relationships. I, I, be, I believe uh, all three of the Godfather <laughs> movies are movies about business. You go with the second one just because De Niro is excellent in that movie. Uh, as a backup, though, another obvious choice: Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, David Mamet, who wrote the play Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, and then adapted it for the. The film version, and I believe the adaptation is simply he just adds the scene with Alec Baldwin Mm -hmm. where he gives that great speech at the beginning, always be closing. Um, I I could watch uh, any David Mamet movie. Another one which you use as the opening of your radio show is Heist with Gene Hackman. That's a 
an excellent con man movie. Yeah, da- David Mamet writes great movies in general, but certainly about business and uh, some of his dialogue about money is amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, one bit I have to say. So myself and one of my very close friends, when we go out for our Saturday brunch at this like sort of greasy spoon diner in the area, when we will have our huge brunch, we have we split an order of the French toast, a grilled muffin, and then we'll each get an omelet. Um, and we call that the Glen Gary Glen Ross <laughs> breakfast because that thing is only for closers. Um. <laughs> Mike Olson, Tony Arsby, guys, thanks for being here. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Forward. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hell. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.